0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of But Why. But this is something a bit different. It's a condensed version. It's our favorite conversations about tricky subjects revisited and reduced into bite-sized chunks. Hello, and welcome to another episode of But Why. The podcast is all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week, we're going to be looking at war. Today, I'm talking to Taban Shoresh, a former child genocide survivor. Taban is the founder of Lotus Flower, a non-profit that supports women conflict survivors and refugees in Kurdistan, Iraq. With a political activist father during the Saddam Hussein's regime, Taban was imprisoned with her family, aged just four, and they narrowly escaped being buried alive. After a year of dodging bullets and bombs, they were finally flown to the UK by Amnesty to start a new life. Then, in 2016. Taban decided to give up her successful City of London career and establish the Lotus Flower. It now supports women and girls who have lost everything in the hands of ISIS, including their homes and loved ones, and who are also su- who have also suffered barbaric crimes such as slavery, rape and torture. I mean, I'm just saying those words because they're the, they're the way I want to introduce it, and then you have to try and, for a minute, absorb the actual reality of all of that, and it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. It really is. So tell me about like, the earliest memories of your childhood, I suppose.
1: So I guess in terms of my childhood, my um, I was born into the Iran-Iraq and war. So I'm Kurdish. I'm from northern Iraq. And I was born into that region into a war. Um, and that was between in Iran and Iraq that was going on. And then on top of that, because we're Kurdish and the Kurds were oppressed by all the regions that Kurds resided in, um, we, we we were targeted because my dad was a political activist. He was also a Peshmerga, so he was a freedom fighter. Um, he also was a poet. And at that time, his poems were invoking people to uprise. And so he was on the most wanted list, list not only for carrying a gun, but also carrying a pen. Mm. So the way that they would capture these families was that uh, these men was was by capturing the families um i don't remember like my childhood days i don't remember our dad being with us a lot mm-hmm. um i think at one point my mom tells me a story where he'd come back from the mountains and carried me and said whose child is this I didn't yeah. it's his child so he never really spent a lot of time at home they were always fighting part of the cause um and away from the family and so We didn't really spend a lot of time together as a family. It was mainly my mum bringing us up as a single parent. She was working at the time. Um, And actually, so when she was working, you know, in in offices, you would have secret police. So if she would take too much time off, they would interrogate her to find out why and where she'd been. And the time that she would take off is actually when she would go and visit my dad um, secretly And she'd had enough of this and just decided, right, I've had enough. I need to leave. I can't be interrogated after each time I leave work or take time off. Mm -hmm. So she left and the day after, um, there was, I was playing in my grandma's garden and there was a massive knock on the door and like the garden gates and it like startled me because it, the rattling on the concrete. Mm And I, I froze and waited for an adult to come out. And as soon as I saw my uncle go out to the gate to try and open the door, I ran to him like, like a child would run to an adult for safety. Mm-hmm. So I just ran to him but thought, actually, it might be family. So let's see who's, who's come around. So I stood in front of him. And as he opened the gate, um, there stood like two Iraqi soldiers. And they asked for my mum. And at this point, my uncle knew why they'd come, because, mm. it, you know, this, this is something that they were doing to people. He tried to deter them by saying, oh, actually, um, she, she's, she's not involved with the father anymore. She's left him. And this is because of this child. And, you know, he patted my head, thinking that he would somehow uh, deter the situation and mm. get them to leave. And actually they looked down at me and said, Oh, so this this is her child. Um, and he said yes. And at this point I think he'd realised, oh no, I shouldn't have revealed that because ah. they also take the children once you do. Um so my mum came out and they, they just said, we're gonna take you in for questioning. That's you know, not not nothing serious, we'll just take you in for questioning. Um, but I think everyone knew what was really gonna happen. And I have an older brother. And so they hid my older brother in the basement. And the basement has like a little window opposite the garden gate. So he actually saw us being taken away. Um, and so they decided to take my mother away, but they decided to take me with her as well. And we went. And the first prison they took us in was just a normal prison where you had like normal criminals. I, was, I, I remember walking in and just people staring, like mm. lots of, strange people just staring and it was uncomfortable and in that prison they took the adults we were all in the same room but they took them one by one to try and interrogate them and get information out of them and they didn't give anything away and so after that they took us to another prison which i call like an ethnic camp because it was all kurdish women children and men the men were separated from the women and children Um, And on the way, they, you know, we picked up a young, I'd say young man around 18 years old, and he was blindfolded. And he was just crying and screaming, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. And I mean, he's he's dead. That's what they did. They would, especially the young men, they would take them and kill them and execute them. And my grandfather was trying to console him, just trying to reassure him that he he's not going to die, but he knew that he would anyway. Mm -hmm. They took him off and we never saw him again. And that was the fate for, for, for a lot of men. Um, they would be killed, a lot of them on the spot or in execution style by lining them up. Um, so we were taken to the second prison. And I, I remember this clearly was coming out and just seeing the prison and seeing like small, I remember small windows and all the women gathered around to the small windows to see who was coming, who was new. Um, my grandfather was separated from us because my paternal grandparents were taken as well Um, and my grandmother was with me my grandmother was holding me and my grandmother was the main person that looked after me because my mum was in absolute Mm. shock and trauma and angry and she she so she couldn't really I mean I always try and imagine myself in my mum's mum's shoes at that time Mm. I've got a son who's 19 but when he was you know 4 5 there's no way that i could have gone through what she's gone through she went through it with two children so for her at that time i just remember her being very just numb numb from mm. life and like not not aware of anything that's going on she had she had to fight for space for me and my grandma because there was no space in the camp everyone was back to back um and then we ended up staying there for about two weeks after two, 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 three weeks after that, they called some family names and ours was on the list um, who we thought we were being let out. But actually they, I didn't know this at the time because I was too young, but when we went out, all the adults started qu- crying and wailing and screaming. And this was because there was diggers in front of the buses and those diggers were basically for us to be buried I didn't know that, but, but it was a common way that they would kill people. There's so many mass graves in Iraq. It's unbelievable. I think it's one of the countries with the highest number of missing pe- people. And it's because of those mass graves. Um, and what they would do at that time, the tactic was, was that they would make sure you saw the shovel and the diggers. Mm-hmm. And when you get to your location, they would dig in front of you. So, so it's a slow death and you knew that your death is coming. And then they would line you in the hole and alive, so not killed, alive. And then they would shovel soil over you slowly. Um, So it's a very, very torturous slow death. Um, Anyway, all the screaming and the wailing kind of stopped as soon as people were on the buses because they realized, well, we're going to die now. So it turned into like whispers of prayers. Everyone was reciting the Quran. That's all I remember was just really, really quiet whispers. Um, we halfway through driving the car the buses were stopped and so at that time you had Kurdish people working for the Iraqi government for Saddam Hussein but then you also had Kurdish people working for the Iraqi government for Kurds so in situations like this we, we were basically rescued by them Um, the buses stopped and there had been some sort of deal that was made outside because it stopped for a while and then it carried on and then they stopped it again and opened the doors and said we're Kurdish we're not going to kill you we're going to let you go but you need to disappear as if you're dead because if you're caught again you'll be killed on the spot and so they let us go and we managed to like my grandparents and my mum We managed to kind of make our way to like a main road. It was on the mountainside somewhere. It's very hard to describe. Mm -hmm. Kurdistan is very mountainous. Um, And my grandfather stopped a taxi and he happened to be one of my grandfather's older students, like previous students. (laughs) He was a teacher. And he just said, what are you doing in the middle of nowhere with your family? It, It just doesn't make sense. And at that time, you can't talk to anyone or tell anyone anything. So you just kind of let them... Um, you don't say anything because you can't trust anyone. So he said, just drive us back to the city, sneak us back in, don't say anything, don't ask any questions. Um, we went back, but instead of going back to my mum's parent, like my grandparents' house from my mum's side, um, we went to my mum's sister-in-law, um, stepsister's house, because it's the least place they would have searched. as in like searching via family members Mm -hmm. it's the least place they would have searched first and um we walked in and everyone was wearing black everyone was crying it was they were basically mourning our death because news had gone to them that we'd been buried alive so for us to walk in I think was a bit of a shock um but my dad had sent a message that night and said that we need to leave the city and we can't stay there my grandparents decided to stay And my mum decided to leave my older brother because in the eyes of the government, they didn't really know that he existed. And so she thought, well, if anything happens to us, at least he survives. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, I remember going to the south of Iraq where my mum had a stepbrother and because it's an Arab populated region, it was the least likely place for them to search if we didn't go out the house. And my mum spoke Arabic, so it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, I wasn't allowed out because I was four years old and I only spoke Kurdish so for three months I had to stay indoors um, and I remember just fighting with my cousins quite a lot um, and then after that my mum put her foot down and told my dad we need to leave this country we're, we're gonna die like there's no mm-hmm. other way I can't live in hiding like this so he finally agreed and said okay I'll meet you in yeah you know. and at that time you You had the Iran and Iraq war. So all the bombs that were dropping, they were dropping in rural regions at all the villages. And that was the only way that we could escape. So we would go from one village to the other. We picked up my brother and then we picked up, like we met in some villages. Sometimes we'd end up staying in villages alone with just fighters and there would be like two weeks of bomb raids and we couldn't go anywhere. Um, I remember once we were at a a uh, friend's house and they were doing house searches I mean I always think something is definitely protecting me because they were doing house searches and they hid me and my brother in big barrels so there's a barrel of flour a barrel of rice so my mum was like right you need to hide in there and they searched every single house and they stopped at that one and said okay we've had enough I thought phew okay we've had another lucky escape um And then we went from village to village and all these villages were all deserted. Like nobody was there because of the bombs that were dropping. So it was mainly just fighters that would have been there. Um, And then we finally managed to sneak into Iran after 12 months of hiding and fleeing in those conditions. And it was at nighttime on horseback. And I'll never forget this because I remember, you know, we were going up the mountain with the horse and I was sitting behind my mum and the horses went, lifted the two legs up, and I thought, "Oh gosh, we're going to off this mountain," um, but we didn't. Uh, we made it there. And in Iran, once we we were there, we had friends, family, friends that looked after us, and my dad was going to meet us there. So in the meantime, my dad was still in Kurdistan, and. Um, Saddam Hussein had hired a husband and wife to poison a group of men and he was on that list and so the couple were Kurdish so nobody suspected anything and food in my culture is just massive so you you invite everyone you overfeed them and it's it's just a big very big thing so you'd never suspect anyone that invites fighters to be fed Um, so they laid out a massive feast and it was all the lovely food and like you know they don't eat this food all the day all the time so it was massive massive feast for them Mm. to really um enjoy but what they we have this drink called and it's it's like Aidan it's a yogurt drink and they put the poison inside the yogurt drink um and I think it was I can't remember it was like rat poisoning to take thallium that's it um so you couldn't smell it and you couldn't taste it and two men I think died on the spot and as soon as they died they knew okay we've been poisoned. And my dad and two other guys were poisoned critically but they managed to get them to Iran. so when they got them to Iran, I remember like my dad being brought in his hair was falling out you know he was, it, it was horrible. I think he stayed for one night um, and the lady that we were staying with she knew how to do like medical ops so she was keeping an eye on him. Um, but then Amnesty International had heard of the story and decided, right, we are going to um, we're going to fly my dad and another guy to the UK for medical treatment. And the other guy was flown to France. So that's my childhood. And then after a year, we after a year of waiting for my dad to survive and the papers to kind of be ready we, we ended up in the UK and I came here at the age of six in 1988 uh,
0: I haven't done a lot of interviewing I've done a lot of listening because your story is extraordinary but um, and the work that you're doing is so important so thank you for sharing it
1: thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure